Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the podcast from P-Town. Hope everybody's having a good week. Uh, hopefully the wind doesn't come through too loud on this one. It's blowing like crazy here right now. I think spring is about my favorite week of the year here in Oregon. It gets really nice and warm for about a week, and then winter sets back in for another month or so, and everybody ends up with a good old-fashioned cold like what I've got now. Anyhow, let's uh, get going. This week, I think everybody saw that uh, Prince Philip died, and that's kind of a sad thing. It kind of makes me wonder what's going to happen with Meghan and Andrew or whatever after they just came out with their interview with Oprah about what they thought about the royal family. And when I was thinking about doing a podcast, I was thinking about doing a true crime one, but then I noticed that there's a ton of true crime podcasts out there. I listened to a whole bunch of them. But there's one deal that I saw on the news uh, this week about a serial killer that I may end up having to do a podcast about. The guy's name was Samuel Little, and he was supposed to be the most prolific serial killer in the United States. I always thought like Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or one of those guys was it, but I honestly, I don't know that I'd ever heard of this guy. He had evidently killed like 93 people in 14 different states. And I think it just came out like in 2018 that he confessed to a Texas Ranger that he was actually the guy who had killed all those people and whatnot. And I hadn't really even heard of him to be honest with you. So I may end up researching that one a little bit and see if I can find any other uh, podcasts that have talked about him or anything like that. I'm sure they're out there. I just I just haven't stumbled upon one, or if I did, I don't remember it. But So I thought that was kind of interesting, that there's not more podcasts out there about this guy. But anyhow, this week we're going to end up finishing the Seven Wonders of the Ancient World. So like I have been saying, if you guys have ideas of other things that you want me to cover... Uh, definitely shoot me a message on any of the social medias or anything like that of what you'd like me to cover so I can uh, get some ideas to continue on with. This week we're going to start off with the Colossus of Rhodes. And this one, it, it was a statue of the Greek god Helios, and it was on the island of Rhodes. And it was built by a guy by the name of Charis of Lindos, and he built this in 280 B.C., and as another kind of squirrel moment, makes me, we know it is 280 BC, but it kind of makes me wonder how they told time back in the BC days because we know BC is before Christ, and so they wouldn't really know what it was. And I was looking at it, and a lot of times they'll tell the time as to how long a certain person has been um, emperor or something like that. So like the fifth year of emperor such and such or the 10th year of king so-and-so. But then, and then I guess they would just add up the people who were before them, how long they were emperor or whatnot. But then you got to think, what if a new civilization starts up? Or if they went for a certain period of time without having an emperor, how would that gap be told in there? So I don't know. That was just kind of something I was thinking about when I was all these different things are being built in the BC eras, how they knew what year it was. And even so too, when you get way back to like 1400 BC or something like that, how did they know when that was? 
But anyhow, this uh, wonder, it was one that, uh, it was, I think, the only one that wasn't built uh, entirely of rock. And it was created when Rhodes, they were helped out by Ptolemy I of Egypt, and they they were turning back a siege by a guy by the name of Antigonus I Monopthalmus. And he was a common enemy of these guys. Both Egypt and the people in Rhodes uh, were warring with him. And he was actually working for Alexander the Great. So I think this was in the time that Alexander the Great was rampaging all through that area over there and taking over different places. But anyhow, in 304 BC, Ptolemy sent ships across the sea there to help the people of Rhodes turn back a guy by the name of Demetrius, who was the son of this Antigonus guy. And they brought in these ships and started shelling the guys that were laying siege to the people on Rhodes. And Demetrius ended up abandoning, abandoning the siege. And they abandoned it so quickly that they left most of the equipment and their weapons and stuff like that there. They just kind of turned tail and ran. So the people of Rhodes, they gathered up all of the stuff that they'd left behind and basically yard sailed it for 300 talents. Or yard sailed most of it, I guess. And then they took the money that they gained from the yard sale, and they decided to build a statue honoring the god Helios, who was their patron god. And they also kind of think that he helped to turn back Demetrius and whatnot. And so they got this money, and then they conscripted this guy Charis to uh, start building this thing. And he actually be began construction in 292 B.C., but the accounts of the building of this and whatnot, they differ a bit, but they say it was built with iron tie bars and then brass plates over the bars for the skin. So they kind of had, they built the uh, inside of it with these bars and whatnot laid across there, and then they put this brass plating on the outside for the skin. But the statue, uh, when they were building it, it was built on top of a 15 meter tall marble pedestal. And then inside of it, it was filled with rock and whatnot as the construction continued. So like I was saying, they'd build the outer frame and then they'd put the brass plating around it. And then I guess they just kind of fill rock on the inside of it. And when it was all said and done, the statue itself stood about 105 feet tall. And a lot of the brass and the metal that they ended up using for this was stuff that they reforged from what Demetrius had left behind. And the siege buildings or siege towers that he had that he had left behind, they also used those things to use as scaffolding as the as the statue got taller. But this Charis guy, what he did, he's he built a large casting pit, and then he put clay rocks in the bottom of it, and then uh, kind of placed them out how he wanted the casting to go, and then he would cover them with wax to make the castings, and so he would end up. Uh, each piece would be cast individually and they'd make large fires to shape the clay that they were going to be using. The wax would then, under the fires were built underneath and the wax would drain out and then the brass was poured into the casting. So it would just kind of make a, a casting. Obviously, which is kind of ingenious actually. I think that may be still how they cast a lot of stuff. Uh, these days for like lost wax castings and things like that but obviously it became harder to get the pieces up as the statue grew so he ended up mounding up the dirt around the statue so the workers could end up carrying the parts uh that were going to be placed up higher they could carry him up there and then he'd put him in place but what's interesting about this is 
that mounded up dirt basically concealed everything that was below that had already been put into place. So he kind of did it blind, basically. He just went along with faith that everything was working out down below or that everything was tying in correctly. And um, then once it was all completed and whatnot, then they ended up moving the dirt away and they could kind of see the final outcome of the whole thing. It took eight or it took 12 years to complete the building of this. And unfortunately, the statue it only stood for 54 years. Because in 226 BC, Rhodes was hit by an earthquake. And the quake, it, it caused considerable damage to the entire city. Uh, there were quite a few different buildings in the city that were damaged. But the um, statue, it ended up being snapped at the knees and falling to the ground. So, I mean, obviously, you can imagine something that tall and shaking and whatnot. It wouldn't take much to take it down. And then after that, Ptolemy III offered to pay for its reconstruction, but they went to the Oracle of Delphi, and she convinced them that they must have offended Helios with a statue, and they declined to rebuild it. And that was another thing that I thought was kind of interesting, too, was these oracles that they go and talk to all the time. It kind of seems like that oracle could basically just tell them whatever she wants. You know, because, like, either that or they're crazy and they believe what they think anyhow they say that these oracles are given divine wisdom or being spoken to by some divine force or something but they're supposedly being spoken to by a god like helios or something like that that doesn't exist anyhow so um i think there's a lot of opium in that but anyhow the remains of this thing laid on the ground for around 800 years and it's kind of amazing that they just left it there. My wife gets mad at me if I leave my shoes on the floor overnight. And these people are allowed to leave a whole statue laying around for 800 years. But many of the people had, or a lot of the people in the world and everywhere had heard about this. And a lot of people went and traveled to see the statue laying on the ground. And then we get back to Pliny the Elder and Strabo again, who they pretty much wrote about everything. Both of these guys wrote about the statue and how they even, uh, even though it was lying on the ground, it caused great amazement and wonder of it. That, you know, just seeing this huge statue laying on the ground, you know, the building of it even amazed the people back in those days. But then in 653 uh, AD, the Arabs ended up capturing Rhodes and they, uh, saw the statue there, and they ended up melting the statue down, and they sold the remains of whatnot, and all the stuff they'd melted down, they sold it to a Jewish merchant, and he hauled the stuff off using 900 camels. So that's quite a feat, and that's a, that's a lot of camels. But there have been rumors over the years to end up, or to rebuild the Colossus, and one of them, the latest one, came up in 2015, but... Even if they rebuilt it today, it wouldn't be the same as it was back in those days. I mean, they'd have modern engineering and whatnot to be able to rebuild it now, so it just wouldn't be the same. And they they went so far with this uh, plan that they had a drawing of it and said that it would actually be 150 meters tall, which was five times the height of the original one, and it would cost an estimated $283 million to build it. But as of 2018, which is the latest research I found on this, no official plans have been submitted. And then, and even the website that was promoting the rebuilding of this thing had been taken down. So I doubt it will ever come to fruition on that one. 
And so that's all I have for the Colossus of Rhodes. And as another side note, a lot of these fancy dancy podcasters, they have a, you know, a little recording room that they do their podcasting in. And as you can tell by the audio and everything that I'm not fancy dancy, I just actually record this in a separate room in my house. And it is hotter than the gates of Hades in here right now. It's horrible. But anyhow, we're going to move on to the Lighthouse of Alexandria. And sometimes this one, it's called the Pharos of Alexandria. And this was also built in 280 BC. So people was doing a lot of building around that time. But it was built by the Ptolemaic Kingdom. And it was said to be over 100 meters tall. So Pharos, it was a small island on the Nile Delta. And it was... Uh, in 332 BC, Alexander the Great ended up founding the city of Alexandria. And like we just talked about in the last one, he was running around all over the place, taking places over and whatnot. But then later, after the city was the city of Alexandria was founded, the two of them were connected by what's called as a mole, which is kind of like a walkway or a pier, I guess, that connected the island of um, Pharos to Alexandria. And this thing is stretched out about three quarters of a mile between the two. And which at the time, it's an amazing feat all in itself to be able to construct this walkway or whatnot between these two places. But the lighthouse, it was actually constructed after Alexander was already dead. And it was started by Ptolemy I, who we talked about in the last one, and when he was king. And then it was in, ended up being finished uh, by his son or at, when his son was king or pharaoh or whatever they were back in those days. But it also took 12 years to complete, and it costed 800 talents of silver to build this one. And again, uh, Strabo and Pliny the Elder both commented on this one, and they both claimed that a man by the name of Sostratus was the architect for the lighthouse. And um, like I've been saying, these guys back in those days, Pliny the Elder and Strabos and whatnot, if you read some of their writings... And things that they, it's really amazing what they captured as far as history of what things were like back in those days. You can go down a ton of rabbit holes just uh, researching the different writings of all the guys from back in that time. But with the lighthouse, the light was provided by a furnace at that was at the top of the tower. And the tower was said to be made mainly of limestone and granite. And the stone that was used for it was said to have been mined from a quarry that is east of the city. They actually, in some of the remains that they found, they did testing on the stone that was there, and they found a quarry, an ancient quarry east of the city that they said that this stone had probably came from. So this thing, it was built with three tapering piers, and one of the geographers uh, that had seen it noted that lead was used as filler between the masonry blocks at the bottom and it kind of like with the great pyramid of um egypt or great pyramid of giza i mean the the stones they actually fit together rather well especially using the rudimentary tools that they had back in those days but at the top of the thing to get the light and whatnot there was a large mirror to reflect the sunlight during the day and then there, like I'd said, there was a furnace to provide the light at night. And the seaward-facing side also had an inscription dedicated to Zeus on it, so that people could see that when they were coming into the harbor or whatever. And though one of the ways that they know that this thing was real, because it's obviously destroyed now, the lighthouse, it was also depicted on coins that were made in Alexandria at the time. 
which is another amazing thing that when they minted these coins, you know, they talked about um, in Jesus's time where he says, give to Caesar, what is Caesar and whatnot, because they had coins with a depiction of Caesar on it. And back in these days, they had coins with depictions of the lighthouse on it or the temple of Zeus. They had coins with that on it. And it's just amazing. I, th you know, I think they had to mint all of these things by hand. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of interesting. But the most accurate description of the lighthouse, it came from an Arab traveler, and his name, this one, this is a rough one. This is rougher than the Rus Russian ones, I think. His name was Abu Hagag Yusuf Elbian Muhammad al-Balawi al-Andalusi. And could you imagine being a kid growing up having to write that out on your papers? Good grief. But he traveled to Alexandria in 1166 A.D., and he said that the he was able to tour this thing, so it was obviously still up then. He said that the inner ramp was large enough for two horsemen to pass at once going up this thing. And then the ramp, the, it contained four stories with 18, 14, and 17 rooms on the second, third, and fourth floors. So it wasn't just a lighthouse that you went up into. There was actually rooms inside of this thing. The destruction of the lighthouse came, it was cracked and damaged by earthquakes in 796, and then again in 951. And then the structural collapse of came in an earthquake in 956, and then again in 1303, and then yet again in 1326. So this area, it was wrought with earthquakes. They must have had a lot of them around that area. And I think that one in 1326 was the one that finally took the whole thing to the ground. But then in 1480, the sultan who was running the area at the time, he used the remainder of the stone to build up the what's called the Citadel of Cape Bay. And Cape Bay was uh, the sultan who was the guy there. And the Citadel, it's like a fortress and whatnot. And you can actually see it. It's kind of a cool-looking thing. But in 1968, a team of archaeologists confirmed the site of the lighthouse. So they found out exactly where it was, was at. But the ex expedition that they were doing to find out more information of this, it was called off due to lack of specialized archaeologists, and also the area was becoming a military zone, so they didn't want to get blown up in there. Then in 1994, a uh, French team ended up finding some of the remains of the lighthouse underwater in the harbor, and there's pictures of that that you can see on the internet, which is, they're kind of neat to look at. But they found chunks of granite that were estimated between 49 to 60 tons at the bottom of the harbor and like i'd said uh, earlier that the stones that were quarried for this were east of the city and it's just amazing how they managed to move those things that heavy and that big any distance at all and to get them out um of the rock in one piece so yeah that it no wonder these things are called wonders but they actually cataloged over 3,300 pieces during this find. These French guys did. And what some of the things that they ended up finding in this find, they were 30 sphinxes and five obelisks that were dating back to the time of Ramses II. The, he was around in 1279 to 1213 BC. So they'd held on to these things for quite a while. And with that... That's kind of the end of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This was um, 
this one was a lot of fun. I hope everybody enjoyed hearing about these ones. Um, hope everybody maybe learned a little bit of it. I think all of these things are amazing. Just what the people did back in those days with a little ingenuity and their primitive tools. Or maybe the aliens, which I still think leans a lot of credence. Maybe the aliens helped them build all these things. But like I said at the beginning of the episode, shoot me some ideas of what you'd like to hear about next. And go. you can go ahead and do that on the podcast from P-Town page on Facebook. Or you can shoot me a message on P-Town Podcast on Instagram. Or you can send me an email at ptownpodcast74 at gmail.com. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you guys on the next one.